I mean, part of it's building up sort of the thick skin for it, but part of it's also realizing, you know, so now whenever we are working on something, people are always like, like, oh, do you guys fight over how it's going to work out? And we're like, well, no, because it's generally, if someone comes to, if one of us comes to the other and says, this isn't working, that's probably a good indication that when the reader gets a hold of it, they're not going to understand what's going on either. And it probably needs to be fixed. So it's just always like whoever's making a complaint, it's usually early warning system for us, you know, that it's something we need to take care of. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Origin Stories. I'm your host, Jarrett J. Krasoska. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Jennifer Holm and Matthew Holm, siblings and co-creators of the best-selling, award-winning, and trailblazing Baby Mouse and Squish graphic novel series. <laughs> I cannot understate just how important their work is to the current-day landscape of graphic novels for young readers. Baby Mouse Queen of the World was published in December of 2005 by Random House Children's Books. It was one of the very first kids' comics put out by one of the major trade publishers. Jenny, Matt, and I go way back, but I was so interested to learn even more about their history. So let's get into Jenny and Matt's origin story. Origin Stories with JJK. Jarrett J. Krasowski. Jarrett Krasowski. Before we get into today's comics conversation, Origin Stories is sponsored in part by High Five Books, a beautiful and incredible indie bookshop here in Florence, Massachusetts. Check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for links to buy our guest books from this fabulous indie. And while you're over on the High Five's website, check out their curated list of book recommendations. Truly High Five worthy. Okay, on to my chat with... Jennifer Holm and Matthew Holm. <laughs> hey, Jenny. Hey, Matt. Hello. Hello. I'd like to learn a little bit about the early days of Jenny and Matt. Could you have imagined, you know, being kids, being siblings under one roof, that you would someday grow up to work together and still be in touch so often? Like, your collaborators... And your siblings. And I'm just curious of, of what that journey has been like for you. Been crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't imagine that would have made no sense when we were kids. For starters, we just all wanted to get out of the house because, you know, there were five kids. So you're just always looking for like a little <laughs> a little corner of, of time to yourself and space to yourself. So saying like, oh, you're going to spend all this time with your siblings later. You know, that seemed unlikely. But also Jenny and I are... I guess uh, on the surface back then we'd be an odd pairing because I was so much younger. I was six years younger than Jenny. So she completely ignored me basically as a kid. I was not on her radar. Yep. True. <laughs> <laughs> he was like the toddler in the kitchen. So there used to be these things called playpens back in the old days. <laughs> and I felt like we always had a playpen in the house and Matt's playpen was in the kitchen and he would just like, I guess the famous story was he was, so, he would get sick of so many kids around that he would just put himself in the playpen for a break oh, yeah. to get away from the rest of us. So mm -hmm. yeah, he was done with the older kids. <laughs> That's hysterical. And so tell us, tell me a little bit about, you know, what, what your home was like. So there's a bunch of kids all excited to get out of the house eventually, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of pop culture did you have? What kind of books did you have around the house? Was, was art something that was supported so we had so many books i mean i'm the youngest out of five and so they're and the oldest is about 18 years older than i am so there's an entire generation of just kids books cluttering up the house plus all the books from our parents and they were pretty big readers so we you know we didn't read their books because we were not interested but they were always around and they were always reading so that's certainly imprinted on us that that's a thing you do as you read books and so there were a ton of the Hardy Boys and the Tom Swift Jr. things, all those weird adventures from like the 50s where blonde haired boys are flying rocket ships and, and stopping burglars in space or some nonsense, you know. And so there'd be those. But then there were also tons of comics of all kinds. There were tons of newspaper comics like Charlie Brown and Snoopy and uh, Ziggy and BC and our dad loved Hagar the Horrible. You know, our oldest brother started collecting these Peanuts collections going back, you know, from the first ones in the 50s. So we had all these ancient books of Charlie Brown and Snoopy that we, were, we would leaf through. And then there's also like a milk crate in our basement that was just full of beat up 
well-used, half-discarded, half-shredded DC and Marvel and every other random comic in the world. And there was no such thing as like sequential <laughs> issues, you know? There was never a consecutive issue of any of these comics. There's always like some random Superman adventure, some random Green Lantern adventure, some random Spider-Man, some random Casper the Friendly Ghost, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so, uh, so we just, but we were just reading everything. And then as we grew up, you know, we'd start collecting our own stuff. So Jenny got really into fantasy and then I started reading her, reading her bookshelves as well. (laughs) (laughs) And I think what was the other, what was a big influence was our, our father. So our dad was, he was a bit of an older dad, which is to put it in context. He served, you know, he ran away and joined the Navy during World War II, but he had been a huge fan of comics from when he was growing up. And he loved Prince Valiant and Flash Gordon. And so when we were kids, he had tracked down, I don't know where he found them, but there were actually bound volumes of all those original strips that, you know, somebody had had bound together. Kind of somebody, probably like an Andrews McMeal collection type. And so I loved just sitting with the Prince Valiant books and reading through them and the Flash Gordon books too. And so you had this house that was... Uh, you know, filled with comics, sequential art. So your your dad was a lover of comics. And were you making comics as kids? Like, is that because obviously, Matthew, you love to draw. And Jenny, did you ever draw too? No. So I would say, even though we grew up with all these comics, we kind of grew up in a medical household. So yeah. <laughs> very strange house. So our dad was a pediatrician and our mom was a pediatric nurse and she worked in his office. And it was like the old school days of being a small town doctor. Mm. Uh, to the point that somebody on the block would bash, some kid would bash open their head on the block and they literally come bring the kid to our house and my dad would stitch them up on the kitchen counter. Like that was totally normal part of growing up. Um, <laughs> and he used to keep, he used to keep cultures in our fridge. I thought everybody's dad, like when you got, you know, like your throat is swabbed that you like kept you that have, in your refrigerator. You your throat or what antibiotic is going to work against what you're sick with. They would take a long Q-tip and swab the back of our throat and smear it on the the little Petri dish, the blood agar plates, and and then keep it in the fridge until you had a chance to go into the office and take it into the incubator, you know. And he always had spares there just in case. In case anyone got sick, he could swab them up real quick. <laughs> yes, I mean, it was a very much like came out of like a medical background because also then my mother's mom, she was a nurse who had been married to a surgeon. So I think the idea of growing up and doing art was completely not even conceived and also on the other side of the medicine was that we were a big, originally a big Navy family. So our dad was in the Navy and our mom was in the Navy and they both went into the Navy because they came from like poor backgrounds. Our dad, especially our mom growing up, her mother had been a widow, so she didn't have money for college. And so they both joined the military to, you know, get farther in life and get a college career. So they didn't have the luxury of even imagining like an art career, I think, if that makes mm. sense, because they kind of came from... Our dad especially came from like a really poor farm, I guess you would say, like a dairy farm. Yeah, so that that would be completely inconceivable because it's not practical. And, hmm. you know, as, as a parent now, I get it, right? Because my grandparents were always really nervous about how I might support myself in the future. So then, you know, when, when you all left the nest, you know, Jenny, you left first. Did you go to college? And what did you go to college for? And did your parents expect you to go into the medical field too? I think they knew that that was not going to happen. <laughs> I don't, none of us were, I mean, Matt, Matt would have been the only one who had a shot at medical school. The rest of us didn't have great science and math grades. I went to a tiny little liberal arts college called Dickinson College. It's in central Pennsylvania. And I went to school for diplomacy. (laughs) Well, right, you know, with that right there, that is how you're able to work together as siblings after all this time. (laughs) But Matt, Matt was smarter. He actually pursued some art in college. Yeah, although, I mean, again, our parents, they never said one of you has to be a doctor or even like we're really pushing anyone to do that particularly. And we, we, we all saw how kind of a lousy job it was because our dad, again, in those days, he'd get called all the time, get called in the middle of the night and have to get up and leave and drive off to the hospital or the office to see some kid. We'd be at dinner. He had a beeper back when that was like, you know, pagers were unheard of, like nobody had pagers. Certainly, you know, this is before texting and cell phones and everything. So he'd get beeped at dinner somewhere and then you have to run off and find a payphone and call into the office and see what's going on. 
And so we're all just like, we don't want to do that. That's that seems awful. <laughs> like a terrible job. And yeah, and so it was really like when I was in seventh grade, probably I started drawing actual cartoons. I mean, I'd always drawn stuff before then, but I think it was at the same sort of rate that every kid does when you're in school and they're drawing things with crayon or whatever in art class. But then in middle school, I started trying to like actually draw comic strips of my own. And I became interested in doing cartoons, but it wasn't a job that you could get as far as I knew. You know, it wasn't like there wasn't a college course for that, unlike now where there are entire colleges devoted to making comics. And so it was just like, it was a neat idea, but I didn't have any idea how you could go into that work. But I tried to sort of keep my options open, I guess, as I was going into college. And so I majored in English, but I was in the honors program at Penn State. And so you could basically at that time take any class you wanted. That was the the benefit of being in the honors program was yet you had some access to some higher level classes in some of the areas, but also you could totally skip any of the prerequisites that that non-majors would have to do. So like other English majors, if they want to take art, they could only take like the weird, like zero level introduction to art classes. And I went straight in, was taking the same classes that all of the actual visual arts majors were taking. So I ended up with almost a double major worth of classes in art and uh, just basically filled every spare class I had with art classes and ended up graduating with honors in art. So I did like my honors thesis in art. And, but well, I think the really the biggest thing I got out of college other than all of that was I got to draw political cartoons for the school newspaper. And so I started that literally, I think like my third week of being in college kept doing that up until my senior year when the workload was just too much. I had to stop drawing at that point, but being forced to draw on a regular schedule for publication and having to work in these limitations of sort of space and and resolution kind of back then because you know newsprint is a terrible medium to print onto so you can't do a lot of detail everything has to be large and kind of clear and ready, easy to understand and so that was really kind of like my crash course in how to how to make cartoons and comics and how to sort of simplify my art style and everything and did you love the sense of people responding to your art being printed? Like, did that ignite something in you? Well, I mean, it's a college campus. No one reads the newspaper, really. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got almost no responses. I think I got like three letters at one point. I did get into a uh, weird letter campaign back and forth with, I think, the, the president of the student council at that point, who was complaining about how I was depicting him. We went back and forth a couple times. And at one point he was, he was good natured about it though. Cause he was like, it's like, Hey, I, I disagree with that. And I wrote back, well, this and that. And he's like, okay. He's like, PS I've changed my hair. So his hair, I guess was different <laughs> from like the file photo I had of his hair that I was using to draw him. So, <laughs> Well, I guess in a way that also prepared you for publishing where <laughs> you know, no, one, some, no one reading your work. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you, sometimes you work so hard to get stuff out oh. there and you don't know if anyone's reading it. Um, yeah. And then sometimes the yeah. only thing you notice is when people don't like it. <laughs> they write bad reviews. Exactly. Oh oh. So Jenny, what was what was your entry into publishing? So Matt Matt had his college newspaper. What about you? What was your experience? So mine was I had a very bizarre route to becoming an author. So I went to this little liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. And I spent a year abroad in London, and I loved that. And that gave me the hunger to live in a big city. So when I came back, and also the town we grew up in was tiny. So I came back from my year abroad, graduated, and I literally moved to New York City the next day with a friend, moved to Queens, got a job as a secretary, not an assistant in the old days, they called you a secretary. <laughs> At a, at a public relations firm where our client was axochemical salt. They put the salt on the road for snow. Whoa. <laughs> so I, I, I cut my teeth writing copy about salt uh, on the road. And so I was not very happy with that job. I don't even know how long I was there, just a few months. And I met somebody who was working at MTV and he knew of a job opening for another secretary Although I think they might have called it an assistant by now. 
at a company called Broadcast Arts, which was a very famous animation company in New York City. They had created Pee Wee's Playhouse. And so it was this crazy, massive, massive loft on Lower Broadway in Soho, before Soho became a thing in New York in the early 90s. So I went and worked there and it was kind of the end of an era in animation which is to say they were still doing hand-drawn cell animation, claymation. Nothing was on video yet. Everything was on film. That was such a crazy space. I remember going there and it was this warren of all these little makeshift studios and stuff. And you go into, you just turn a corner into one room, this like totally fake wall that passed no building codes. And there would be this huge, like, I don't know, 30 by 30 foot, thing uh, for craft macaroni and cheese that they were hand animating little tiny elbow macaroni like piece by piece by piece in stop animation and then you go around the next thing and there's a bunch of poor guys that are drawing cell animation for 24 hours straight and, and then like your your partner graham who you later worked with he was like having us like smash stuff in a fake godzilla thing for a british knights tv commercial or something you know <laughs> it's just like all this random stuff in all these corners of this building yeah, I mean, it was crazy. It was just like the Wild West of animation. And so I was the assistant to the two owners who hated each other. So that was really interesting. <laughs> so my diplomacy came in pretty well there. But what was kind of cool about this place was that all the arts then were just basically a big freelance industry. So one of my jobs was to call in freelancers to come and work. And so, so many people would kind of float through and do a gig here or there. So somebody like an artist who was, might be inking during a few months on a, you know, a DC comic that would end and they'd come over and then they would, you know, hand draw cell animation for a tricks commercial or something for us for a couple of weeks. And a lot of creatives who ended up going into children's books, I met there, ironically. So Nina Cruz worked at Broadcast Arts. Mo Willems passed through quite a bit. I don't think he even remembers me, but I remember calling him and having him come in. It was just like this big rotating world of working artists. And I think what I got from them was that everybody was so fired up and every and they all had their own project on the side. So I found that very interesting. And so I did that. I worked there for about two years. And then eventually, I wanted to do, you know, my own thing. So I left and I partnered up with a director and we had our own production company and made music videos and commercials and TV shows for Bravo for about two years, I think. And then I got tired of running a business because it sounds nice to have your own business, but it is so stressful to meet payroll and all of that. And I was 22 years old and doing this. It just seemed like a huge burden. I wanted somebody to just pay me. So I went from that to becoming a freelance producer and producing music videos. And then eventually I went to work for a big ad agency called Ogilvy and Mather. And I was a broadcast producer there. And it was while I was working at Ogilvy doing like not, not particularly exciting commercials. Like, you know, I was on Huggies Diapers and Tagamet and American Express. But, you know, the, the, the days were long. And, but I did have a lot of free time when I was traveling because I would, we shot almost everything in Los Angeles. So I was constantly flying back and forth to LA. So I had all this time on planes. And so around the same time that I was starting to do this traveling, our dad uh, was starting to get sick. So he ended up having Parkinson's and he had it for a very long time, like 20, 25 years. So, I mean, I was the only girl and the oldest of the second group of children in the family, like Matt and John were still like in college and high school. So I was going home a lot and helping my mom out. And it was when I was there that I finally started to like, you know, talk to my dad about his life and his childhood. He had tried to tell us many stories about his life when we were younger, but you know, kids don't pay attention to their parents. <laughs> yeah. But then I was really taken. So he, he grew up on a dairy farm in Southwest Washington and a Finnish American family in a pretty much a town that was settled completely by Finns. And it was a pretty wacky upbringing. And so I just kind of soaked in all these stories of his childhood. And that turned into my first book, Our Only May Amelia, which I wrote over several years, like three years, you know, at night on shoots on weekends. And that's how I ended up getting into children's publishing. Yeah. And then I, I moved into New York City onto Jenny's couch. 
Um, <laughs> he was like the third of, or fourth of many oh, yeah. people who slept on my Ikea couch. Yeah. <laughs> and she was just finished. You, I think you had just finished your draft of May Amelia at that point when I got there and you were starting to shop it around. And I was, I got a job first an internship and then a full-time job for um, working for Country Living Magazine in the city as a writer. I was an English major. I was a magazine nonfiction writer. That was my concentration. And I had mostly done science writing uh, when I was at the college. And the communications department at Penn State had this internship exchange where they would offer to send someone from the graduating class to country living because the editor-in-chief was a Penn State alum. And so I went that year and I stayed on and I worked there for eight years. So that was like my real, like real break in into publishing and how it works. And even though it's magazine versus book publishing, a lot of the stuff is very similar in terms of how the copy flows and proofreading and copy editing and the production and seeing what, even though I was on the editorial side, I saw what the production people did in terms of page layout and color correcting and all that sort of stuff. And I was coming in right as they were transitioning everything to digital. I think like the year before that I was there, they had been still doing stuff where they're, you know, cutting things out with scissors and, and razor blades and putting them down with like wax and that sort of thing. Or if they had to correct text on a page, they would have these, like the final proofs would be these big film sheets and they would have all these little, they'd have a whole bunch of letters of the alphabet at the bottom. And so if they wanted to make a correction, they had to take an X-Acto knife and cut out those letters and then put them up at the top. And they only had as many letters as were in the bottom to fix everything on the page, you know? So we're going from that to when I got there, it was all digital. And I learned how all that worked and everything and got used to being heavily edited, uh, which was a good experience and lesson and uh, ego check for when you get into real publishing. Because, you know, I would write an article and I'd send it through five people in the copy department and come back to me. And there'd be maybe three words that were my original words left there. Everything else had been tossed out <laughs> and replaced. Yeah. And so, you know, you do that for several years and you get used to it. And so then nothing phases you when someone comes back to you and says, this part isn't working. You're like, okay. And then you just get used to fixing problems when someone says that there's a problem there. Because uh, that's a big part of how I think Jenny and I work. Because she was through the same thing in advertising where, you know... I think it was I think it was worse for you, Jenny, because it was like, come up with five original ideas for a commercial and none of them are any good <laughs> in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think what was great. I mean, so advertising at that time was just a crazy, crazy industry, just like the amount of money flowing, the amount of egos like commercial directors were like superstars, like, you know, the guy that shot like the Pepsi commercial, Joe Pitka was like a superstar with huge egos. And it was, it was a very male dominated field, which was fine. I didn't really care because I grew up with all these brothers anyway. So, but what was very interesting. So I was a producer in, you know, in television is usually not a creative person. So I would work with an art director and a copywriter and it was my job to, for them to fulfill their vision. And the most, my most important job was to say no. <laughs> so that was what my <laughs> boss always told me was like, I was the one who had to shatter everybody's dreams. Like, no, we can't afford to shoot this in New Zealand. No, we can't pass the Gourney Weaver star in this commercial. That was usually what I was doing all day. But it did show me how creatives work together, you know, and working with clients. It was such a elaborate web of people who had to buy into ideas and that, you know, definitely don't take it personally. I mean, you'd be in, like Matt was saying, you'd be in a meeting and and people would come in and give their ideas and everything would be shot down and you just turn out and come back in. <laughs> just, it was just the way, the way you did it. So that was, that was really helpful. And so when we both started working together, we both worked in industry, in jobs where people would tell you that you were wrong. <laughs> so Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, part of it's building up sort of the thick skin for it. But part of it's also realizing, you know, so now whenever we are working on something, people are always like, like, oh, do you guys fight over how it's going to work out? And we're like, well, no, because it's generally if someone comes to if one of us comes to the other and says this isn't working, that's probably a good indication that when the reader gets a hold of it, they're not going to understand what's going on either. And it probably needs to be fixed. So it's just always like whoever's making a complaint, it's usually early warning system for us, you know, that it's something we need to take care of. 
If you're enjoying my chat with today's guests and want to see the conversation, which includes visuals of the books we reference, check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories. I recorded this talk via Switcher Studio. Switcher Studio is a simple and powerful iOS app that makes your live video feeds look like a professionally produced piece. Your iPad becomes like the production control room as you switch between your iPhone camera, which acts as a webcam, your remote guests, and any pre-recorded video or visuals you want to bring on screen. I would like to thank Switcher Studio for sponsoring this podcast. And as a thank you to you for listening, you may use code STUDIOJJK at switcherstudio.com to receive a free month of the service. So you both are cutting your teeth. You know, clearly not like, Matt, like I can't imagine you were a lifelong country living fan and you like, someday... <laughs> I, I can't to... wait to write about kitchens <laughs> and, and, Jenny... and dollhouses and collecting teddy bears. Now, now, Jenny, I've known you for close to 20 years now, and I don't think you've ever once mentioned producing music videos. I oh. and, and you have what music videos? I want to know. You haven't mentioned them. I'm, I'm worried. If, it's like, a are great, you avoiding? They're great stories. No, <laughs> just, I so, please give us I a bring... few. Please just tell us a few. Well, I guess my my most famous one is I did a a Red Man and Method Man commercial. I mean, music video. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. Yeah. Steve Carr was the director, and he actually went on to produce uh, direct Eddie Murphy, Doctor Doolittle. I think it was. Wow. Or he he ended up doing like a. I mean, he's still a working director. He did a bunch of Eddie Murphy movies. Yeah, it was crazy. So New York City was a very grungy place in the '90s for filmmaking. And it was it was kind of exciting. So I did, you know, I did music videos. But I think what the other the other freelance that I really enjoyed that I had good stories about was I worked with a Hong Kong director and shot like a lot of I mean, as his line producer and made a bunch of commercials for the Asian market, big products like LG, you know, they make like mm-hmm. washers and yeah. TVs. But I had never worked with any Hong Kong directors. And they kind of had this mythos in the industry because they would work 24 hours a day. They're, you know, they, people would say, like, the studios never closed in Hong Kong. That's why they could push out so many films. But this guy I worked with was like, he was crazy. <laughs> he was completely fearless. And we were doing some shot for an LG commercial. And I had, you know, we had a rented a helicopter. And it was going to shoot one of those classic pictures of, like, New York City on the helicopter. I was booking the camera and I was asking him about what kind of camera he wanted for the helicopter. He said, I don't want a camera. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, no, my camera assistant will just hold me as I hang out of the helicopter. I said, no, we don't do that in America. (laughs) I'm not going to let you fall into the East River on my watch. But he fully expected me to do that. Like, and this wasn't a young guy at the time. I mean, he was like, I mean, we're young, right? He was 50. So now. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it was crazy. So, I mean, it was really fun, but the hours were brutal. That's what killed me, I think. All right, you ready for this? So, 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 Jenny Home and Method Man, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, Jerry Craft used to work on the New Kids on the Block comic books. Oh, right. that's too funny. <laughs> Cece Bell used to design school supplies for Insync. Oh, jealous. So, wow, <laughs> school like supplies. the nice. secret connection between behind like, the music <laughs> industry and children's comics. Um, but of course, you know. My big question now then is then how did you go from, you know, these jobs that you were cutting your teeth with, Jenny, you started publishing your novels, but then you gave the world Baby Mouse. And how, how did how did she come about? I think it was like around 2001, mm-hmm. we did a presentation for Baby Mouse and pitched it and got roundly turned down everywhere. You said 2001? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. We, had, we had actually, so Jenny did May Amelia... And after that, because she, when she suddenly found herself in the historical fiction industry, I think, and in the children's industry unexpectedly, because she didn't know what kind of books she was writing when she started. A lot of us don't. <laughs> it takes the, the market to tell us that you're writing a children's book or you're writing a middle grade book or a YA book or whatever it is. She wanted some more help with the fact checking and the historical work and copy editing. And since I was copy editing all the time, then she had me come in and help her out with the Boston Jane novels that she was working on. Yep, he's free. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's the, that's why you get into business with your younger brothers. <laughs> They're free. You can push them around. And he and he was he was he's so easy to work for me. And so before we worked on Baby Mouse, he worked on another book, but it took longer to get published. <laughs> I wrote Eighth Grade is making me sick, and also Middle School is worse than Meatloaf. Actually, Middle School is worse than Meatloaf was the first one, and it was kind of this collage book that Alicia Castaldi, who I think went to RISD. You went to RISD, right, Jared? Yeah, she, I, she lived on the floor below me. Yeah. Italy. Yeah. <laughs> so she was like this young artist out of RISD. So she yeah. put it together and it was so labor intensive. We didn't, nobody knew what they were getting into. It's just exhausting. It's like a and, what, like 150 fully illustrated, photographically realistic pages. It's insane. It was so painful. It was a nice idea and concept. And one of the things in the book is you find out what's going on in this kid's life by looking through her stuff. And so one of the things was that her brother draws little comics and puts it on her bedroom door. And Alicia was just like overwhelmed. And Matt obviously knew, I knew Matt knew how to draw. So I asked my editor, Jeannie So, I said, can my brother Matt do the comics? And she was like, sure. <laughs> so he did them. Um, but that book came out long, I mean, after Baby Mouse oh, yeah. came out, yeah, ironically. So yeah, so we took it out in 2001. We were Baby Mouse, it was, we were turned down for multiple reasons. I think the biggest reason in retrospect was that there was no publishing pipeline. They didn't have any idea how to physically publish a, you know, a hundred pages of art. And that was the same problem we were having on middle schools where it's the meatloaf. Nobody knew how to manage the print production. It was a complete, I mean, we went through like three art directors in the time it took to get published. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of like a baby that inspired us to get Baby Mouse sold. It's funny. You, you, it's weird when there are like these totally artificial external factors that end up being the push that everyone kind of needs to just pull the trigger on stuff. And because Jenny had pitched, she would go around like every six months and pitch this and pitch this. And our agent was pitching it and nothing, nothing, nothing. But then, uh, then Jenny's son came along. <laughs> yeah. So then I, I had Will. And, and we were living in New York City and my husband got a job at a game studio in Maryland. And that seemed like to me that I was practically moving to Alaska or something. So yeah. this sense of complete panic overtook me that this is my last chance to be in person in New York City, which is silly because it's only like an hour from Maryland. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm going to go around and I am going to pitch it in person again before I leave the city. And, and the I thing did. is, I think, I feel like the editors... They feel that, oh my gosh, you're leaving the city. You're going away from here. You know, like when you're living in New York City, outside of the city is just another planet. And there's no way that anyone could ever work with you potentially, you know, if they're not there. And so I, I set it up kind of the way I would have set up an advertising pitch. And this time we finally got interest from like two houses and we brought it into Random House and they just, they got it right away. I think they got it right away because... I emphasize that I, you know, that we really saw this for early readers and they were, had a lot of success with, you know, the magic, magic tree house and Junie B. Jones and very early reader books for like that first and second grade niche. And so they said, sure. And Matt was like at a consumer good show. I, oh in my God, Vegas. Yeah. So it was actually, it was the the day after your son's Oh yeah, we had christening. the christening, yeah. And I, yeah, I stayed up that night, like until like 2 a.m. working on the presentation for you, quickly drawing a bunch of more Baby Mouse stuff. So you had more pages worth of art to show them. And then I had to fly for Country Living out to Las Vegas for this uh, National Kitchen and Bath show. <laughs> and so I'm wandering around looking at all of these, you know, the latest tub, the new sinks, the the latest in home technology, all this sort of stuff. And uh, and Jenny called me and I had to like run out to the parking lot so I could hear what she was saying, you know. So your eldest, your first kid was like a like weeks old when you were taking this meetings or were you pregnant when you were taking these meetings? Oh no, just hatched, like two a month or two old, yeah. Oh my goodness, like that <laughs> yeah. is such a tough time in a person's life. Like if you've just given birth to a baby, yeah. those first three months are so rough. Like I, wow, I'm like, I'm astounded. You must have had so much adrenaline then run, pumping I through guess, your system. I, I guess. And in that time, like, we ended up moving in the city twice. Yeah, it was crazy. It was definitely crazy. And uh, so I called Matt. I'm like, Matt, you got to quit your job <laughs> because they signed us up for four books out the gate. They wanted two books in two years, you know, from when we signed up. So I was like, get moving. And what, what year was that? Th uh, 2003. 
2003. So they picked it up in 2003. So Matt, did you did you like burst into your boss's office at Country Living Magazine and say like, you can take this backsplash and shove it. I'm done. <laughs> Luckily, no, I wasn't, I wasn't that, that, that harsh because I still ended up doing some freelancer for them over the next couple of years, writing the occasional kitchen up and that sort of thing. It, you know, the, one thing I always think of whenever you get into an industry and it's your dream job is just remember whatever lousy job you're in that you're getting out of, that's someone else's dream job. And I ran mm. into so many people who are like, oh my God, I it would be my dream to work for country living, to work with all those decorating things and all those blah, blah, blah. And like, okay, that's great. I'm like, I'm just trying to figure out a way out of here, you know? Sure, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't, great. and the thing is, it wasn't a bad job. It was a really good job, especially in retrospect. It was a nine to five job, which is like unheard of now, you know? Mm-hmm. At five o'clock, I was done and could get out of there and go draw cartoons or write other nonsense or whatever else I was doing, you know, do all your side hustles and everything. And they were, they were fine with that, you know? Yeah. So I, I quit that job and I was already, I'd already moved upstate a little bit. I was about an hour and a half North of the city and was commuting in, which was a terrible commute to have each way. But yeah, but then we got this job and I'm like, it's going to be difficult to pay rent. And so, uh, Hmm. So we ended up moving into Jenny's weekend house way out in the country. That's about two and a half, three hours north of the city. And uh, and then we became farmers, basically, you know. <laughs> right, because there's something to be said, too, about, you know, one of the things that I guess we don't talk about so much, you know, as as cartoonists, as, as authors, is because we are we are living our dream jobs, our dream lives. But the inconsistency of getting paid is really stressful. So having a nine to five job where you're getting a paycheck once a week or every other week or whatever the schedule is, is very reassuring. And now, so now you're jumping into this thing where not only, you know, it's a new project, but also like Jenny said, like the, the major publishers of children's books, like in the mid O's, they didn't touch graphic novels because they had no business plan. Like they did not know how to put these books out. And, you know, I'm so thankful for your foresight in, in thinking about baby mouse, because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have been able to do Lunch Lady. If it weren't for your work on Baby Mouse, we wouldn't be seeing all of these graphic novels being welcomed into school libraries because, you know, when I pitched Lunch Lady around 2005, and and even though we have the same publisher, I was in a different division, and it took them a year because they were like, "Ah, we don't know how how you would possibly publish a a 100-page illustrated book. And after a year, the advanced reader copies of Baby Mouse came out, and so... Mm -hmm. You know, division that you work with and division that I work with, like, I don't know, do they not see each other at the company picnic to like talk about these things? I always thought that was so weird. Yeah. 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 And so they're like, oh, a limited color thing. And so like, well, let's, 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 that's how we could do Lunch Lady. And at first, you know, sort of similar, they said, we'll sign up two books because they're kind of nervous. And then I finished the first book and they're like, oh, how about, like, how about four? Right. And so, (laughs) and so suddenly now you all went from no one believes in this idea so now they really believe in this idea. And oh my goodness, we have a lot of work to do and not a lot of time. So what what happened after that? When you're taking on just that much artwork, you quickly realize that even though the writing is sort of, you know, <laughs> difficult in terms of your soul and your brain, taking making that out of nothing, just the sheer amount of hours that have to go into creating all the artwork is is far more overwhelming in terms of the time commitment. And so Jenny said, I need to figure out a way to help Matt with this because we don't have a staff. We don't have a penciler, an inker, a letterer, a colorist, uh, you know, all these other people that you would have for a Marvel or DC comic. She's like, how can I do this so that Matt doesn't die drawing this book? (laughs) So we worked out kind of what now looking back is, is really similar to the video editing model that Jenny would have undertaken when she was doing her, her, TV commercials where I kind of, you know, she does the script and she sends it to me and she does it as a storyboard, but a storyboard without pictures, you know, a storyboard for, for films and TV, you'll have a drawing of the scene that you see through the camera. And then you'll have a bunch of description and the dialogue that you hear in the voiceover, the sound effects, et cetera. And so she treated it that way, handling the story shot by shot as if it was going to be shot by a camera 
but just describing everything that was going on. And so I took that description and then I would write, I would draw tiny thumbnail sketches that are almost like I'm, I'm going out to shoot raw footage, taking a whole bunch of disconnected shots. And then it's knowing that later on in the editing bay, it's all going to get put together in a, a cohesive way. I'll scribble out every idea I have for how to represent the story she's written. And then I'll send her those thumbnail sketches and then Jenny actually takes them and sits there and physically cuts them out and arranges them. Because, you know, sometimes even though I work digitally for all of my uh, final artwork, you know, there's parts of the process where it's good to have paper kind of be involved and use that part of your brain. So she cuts everything out, glues it down, sends it back to me, and then I redraw it. At, the, at this point, we've streamlined the process a little bit, so I don't have to draw the book again. But back then, I was re redrawing everything in Sharpie marker at that point. And I drew it all out, and we get the book done, and it's 80 pages long. We send it in as this rough draft for our editors to look at. And they say, you know what? This is It's feeling a little rushed. There are some spaces here where you could have more fun with the art and just let it breathe a little more. And so they're like, why don't you rework the story a little bit? And maybe we can expand this to 96 pages, which is the next batch of pages up you can do in publishing. It's another another 16 pages. And so we're like, okay. Of course, not thinking that now I'm doing an additional 16 pages of artwork. <laughs> um, and so Jenny starts working on kind of reshuffling that. And then and we go into book two then immediately because we have this backlog of all these books we have to work on. And she's already written book two. And so we go into book two knowing that it's going to be 96 pages. And we do the same process. And then Jenny gets the book one back to me. And then I start working on that in book two. And I actually end up finishing book two before I finish book one with the way the process works. And so now we've kind of got our, our rhythm down for how the thing works, where we're always leapfrogging from book to book. Jenny will write something, she'll send it to me. I'll do thumbnails, I'll send that back to her. And then she'll send me the next thing to start, start doing sketches on. And then eventually she'll send me the layouts back and I'll start inking those. And we do that for Baby Mouse for four books. And then, you know, we we had had all four books done before any of them came out. So we're just doing this stuff into... <laughs> into this hopeful future without any idea of how it's going to be received kind of right baby mouse did debut then in was it 2005 or 2006 yeah like chris like day after christmas 2005 how, what was that like for you in regards to introducing the the books to booksellers and educators obviously jenny you had experience in the route of you know going to librarian conferences and going to bookseller conferences you must have had to do some convincing because even though Lunch Lady was unpublished like three or four years later, you know, we all had to have those difficult conversations of like, no, this is a real book. And just because it's a graphic novel doesn't mean it's mature in nature. Did you then become like door to door salesman for the, not only your book, but the format and now the entire industry that publishing <laughs> enjoys? I, yes. No, I definitely, you know, I think you brought it up earlier. I mean, the biggest issue was with every single person I talked to, you know, starting at the publisher and then librarians and then booksellers, where do these go? Because yeah. Yeah. there was no shelf. <laughs> and so like Baby Mouse, you know, in the beginning was shelved with like Junie B. Jones with early readers. And then- Sometimes it would be with humor. Yep. Sometimes it would be with humor collections like Garfield and stuff like that. And then some of the fancier comics that were, you know, the collected DC Marvel stuff, sometimes they would shelve that with the art books. And so and then you'd have to go to there. And so, yeah, it was. And then some some librarians eventually, of course, realized like there just weren't enough graphic novels back then. But yeah. to shelve them alongside. But you would they would just like put them into buckets, basically, They're just like plastic tubs at the front of the room. And they'd circulate so fast. It didn't matter. You need didn't need shelf space for them. You know, that's the great thing about graphic novels. Like it's like we're always like they're like, oh, our shelves are always empty of your books. I'm like, well, that's great. You got room for all those other books. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that's true, though. Like, I, I mean, I so distinctly remember there just being like a brick of pink book spines for baby mouse books. And then there was like bone in full color mm -hmm. and they'd be like on the top of a shelf somewhere. And, but then now, you know, mostly graphic novels are just shelved in like the re they're constantly either in the return or the hold. It's like they never actually make it to the, the, the beautiful display that the librarian has set up because these <laughs> yeah. books are, are constantly, constantly being checked out. So, yeah, you, you, you all hustled. You had this idea. You believed in it. 
Uh, and it had to take a lot of foresight for you to say, here's an idea we have. We believe in it enough to start pitching it and going after it, even though there's no infrastructure for this. Like you must have gone into those meetings, you know, knowing it was a tough sell because traditional publishers, the big publishers, so rely on those mathematical equations when it comes to like picking up a new book. Like obviously they'll take chances as they did, but you know, like, okay, well, here's this author and this is what we think this author can sell. So if we pay the author this much ahead, it's going to cost this much to print. We'll know how much to do it. So like they have that system in place and now suddenly you're, you're throwing them baby mouse, but then there's Squish, which is another graphic novel series for young readers. I see how that connects now to the story you shared about your, your dad keeping your cultures in the freezer. <laughs> like that's oh, so yes. clearly. Am I reading too into it to think Baby Mouse is Jenny and Squish is Matt? Yeah, it's pretty accurate. It's, okay, it's pretty accurate. <laughs> so, so between those two series, how many books are there? So there's 20 Baby Mouse. 20 of the original Squish. Baby Mouse graphic novels. There's eight Squish. So that's 28 just there. Yeah. Times 96, so whatever that is, times 96. Oh, how yeah. many oh pages Matt drew for that? Okay, next. Yeah. <laughs> then what's there? <laughs> what else is there? <laughs> so much pain. There's the Comic Squad books that we worked on, of course. Those were so much fun. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's where I really felt like an honorary home sibling. So you know, Matt, Jenny, and I created this great series called Comic Squad, where we, we come up with a different theme. And then it was like, you know, I never got to choose teams growing up. I was, <laughs> I was never team captain but we got to play like fantasy graphic novel where we're like okay here's the theme is recess okay let's get dan santat or Raina telgemeier and like uh and we did three and they were so much fun there's very fun memories working on on that little series with you and uh, they have such huge fans because i just did a um you know a zoom call with a class uh last week somewhere i can't remember where no on long island and Oh my goodness. It was fifth and sixth graders and they were hardcore comic squad fans. They had all these questions like, how did we know these people? And <laughs> they wanted all the dirty details. It was really funny. Um, it's, it's they, a were, little... they were really into it. Like they're like, Oh, how did you, did you like go to dinner with them? You know? <laughs> it's the little anthology that could, you know, it's still out there. It's still circulating. I'm so, I'm so I, I just, proud of it. I, again, looking back at the workload, uh, I, I'm like, like, how did we get Gene Yang to make time to do a story in that? How did we get Dave Pilkey's Dogman for the first time ever? I you know, know, that we was... We got Dogman before Dogman was released to the public as a series, you know? And I'll give Dave Pilkey credit. Of everyone we worked with was, like, the most on time with deadlines. <laughs> and I'm not going to name any other names <laughs> of the emails that we would send in the middle of the night. Be like, Can, maybe could you send it this week? But that, you know what? Editing that gave me empathy for when I'm constantly behind on my art deadlines. I've just, yeah. you're going to be late. Just be upfront with it. Just, just shoot a message to say I'm running behind. And so you, then you also had some baby mouse, like early, ch like chapter books. Or, or how, would, how would you describe them? Like they're illustrated books? Yeah, it's sort of, the, it's that like that hybrid chapter book graphic novel that like falls into the Diary of a Wimpy Kid or Dork Diaries, where it's like heavily illustrated chapter book, you know, mix of illustrations and comics in it. And so and, that's the uh, Baby Mouth's Tales from the Locker series. And then you also wrote a, a semi-autobiographical series about this cute girl named Sunny, which is sort of loosely based on, on your upbringing, right? Yeah, same, same time period, yep. kind of like what it was like to grow up in the 70s and also some of the family dynamics that we dealt with and our goofy grandfather who lived in Florida and what it was like to go visit him in this world that was entirely centered around old people with no young people around. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we lived in an over 55 community in Vero Beach, Florida, and it was such a trip visiting it as a kid because the whole concept of like retirement communities was was new in the 70s. It wasn't like now we just a lot of, you know, grandpas go and live in old, old people places <laughs> these days. But back then it was new. And so the first time we visited, like my mind was blown that there were no kids anywhere and that you had to have a tag as a child to like be allowed to walk around, like proof that you were a visitor. Yeah, like you weren't we were, just some punk wandering in off the street, you know? Like we were dogs, <laughs> we needed like yeah. tags. <laughs> and there was a golf course around the place he lived and there were always alligators sleeping on the golf courses. And they used to call him Big Al. You just play around him, you know? <laughs> they didn't eat the old people or anything, so. And, and now all that hard work on the initial 20 Baby Mouse books, 
we're, we're going to see her again in full color, right? In a, in a slightly different format, hardcover, paper, paper overboard. Is that it? I yeah, don't so, know what the format is. I don't know. Actually, that's pretty <laughs> sad that we don't, I actually don't <laughs> no. know. Yeah. I mean, so Matt was very burnt out on Baby Mouse. So we took a, sure. we took a, I don't know how many years we took off. I mean, from, I don't know. Cause I mean, like at the end there, we were doing, there was a year where I did two Baby Mouse and two Squish books every year. Yeah. You know, which How's is a wrist? lot. How's your wrist? Is your wrist okay? <laughs> as, 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 you know, it's kind of no. sounds like a joke, but like, seriously, like, no. are you I, taking I, care you of yourself? Know, knock, knock on wood. I'm one of the few illustrators, comics people I've met who has never had to have a wrist brace or anything like that. So yeah. I, I feel like it's worse for the people that do real inking for some reason. Because you Even work digitally. They, I work digitally. Yeah. And so... You know, the pencil sketching part is is lightweight when I'm doing that in the beginning. And then I ink at the end and I've always inked digitally, like since I got out of college, basically, because I, I couldn't afford a scanner coming out of college. So I bought a tiny little Wacom tablet that was like 100 bucks back when scanners were like $500, yeah, you know, so I, yeah. there's no I'm like, I have to get drawings into computer somehow. So I've been working digitally for a long time. So I guess I'm used to the pressure that you need to apply to a drawing tablet, which is less, I think, yeah. oh, sometimes. That's a good point. That's a good and point. I feel like people who are used to working like ink, they want it to behave like paper and they want it to be rough and they want to like dig in when they when they do their stuff. And I'm always like, shouldn't it be glassy and slippery? Like, isn't that what you're looking for wow. for your drawing surface? Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, but yes, luckily my my wrist has survived. But yeah, you know, there wasn't a lot of sleep in that period and uh and I think was there was a point where we both almost had a nervous breakdown because oh, yeah. the one thing that was frustrating was they love to tease the next oh, book so yeah. we at the end of each book so we're literally like i have no idea what the next book is but you have to come up with the idea before the other book's done so no, you have to come up with the idea and draw the entire cover and get the cover and title approved before the next book is even written so yeah. that we can put that in the back of the next book for what's coming next like <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we kind of had a come to Jesus moment at some, I don't know, like around book 15, where we, we yeah. said we have to slow down. This is just, you know, we're, we're gonna, we were burnt out so hard yeah. then. So and I'm so glad that you did, because when you, you're you getting started on a project and a, and a big series, you, you have this energy, you have this motivation, and you stay up late, you're, you're doing a couple books per year, and then you're adding more onto it. But if you're, if your mental health isn't good, your creative work is not going to be strong either, right? And so you were so smart to do that because Baby Mouse is going to be here forever. Baby Mouse is a fixture and an icon of, of children's literature, and she's always going to be there, right? She's always going to be there when you're ready to to revisit that. Uh, and you know, I can't thank you enough. I mean, you come, up, you two come up in so many conversations when I talk to our friends about why we're able to make graphic novels, like why there is this industry. And what I never realized, it's not just YouTube, but now I know it's also Method Man and Country Living Magazine. <laughs> yep. If it weren't for, for, for Method Man and Country Living Magazine. My, my only regret is I never got to write about Method Man's kitchen. You know, right, right, like, <laughs> you know it's a good kitchen. Yeah. Like, could you imagine a world in which that didn't happen and we never would have gotten, like, Raina Telgemeier's smile? I had know. It not been <laughs> for... Good thing but... I got burnt out on rap videos. <laughs> But seriously, though, seriously, though, I'm so appreciative of my friendship with both of you. As a father of kids who don't always get along, I'm, you are such an inspiration of me taking heart that maybe someday when my kids are adults, they could be friends. Well, it's a lot easier when they're not living in the same house and like trying yes. to oh make God. time in the bathroom for each other in the morning, you know? Right. It's like we're not fighting over who's next, you know? Yeah. When I'm all that's out of the way and you're not in each other's hair, it, it gets a lot easier. Yeah, we both fought a lot with the brother between us because yeah. <laughs> so, we were closer in age to him we were both close in age to him so yeah well you know i guess there's a reason why there are you two working on these books and not all of the home siblings i suppose <laughs> oh my gosh oh gosh well i can't wait to see you know what you give the world next with your words and pictures and i again thank you all so much for making the time today and thank you for you know all of that foresight and hustle that you put into this you're very, Aww. you're very much loved and appreciated in the community. Well, that was today's origin story. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in picking up some of my guest books and you'd like to order online while supporting a human with a dream, head to studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories 
for a link to High Five Books, a wonderful sponsor of the show. Until next time, you may find me via at Studio JJK across all social networks.